Cuckoo clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the semi-centennial 50th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm an ostrich. You just can't deny the power of a Latin groove, Meredith. And I'm basking in the glow of satisfaction like a Komodo dragon basks in the glow of the sun. Mike. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. While we lack an expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. 50 episodes. I know, Meredith. We've done it. That means 100 animals. I know, that's bonkers, right? <laughs> it's really bonkers. Um, and I, I, I'm i like, I probably don't remember most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I was thinking of it, Meredith, when I was doing my research for the animal today, not to give it away, but it was saying that some of the things that it ate included annelids, and I was like, oh, worms. I just knew it. Yes. You know? See, it's in there, but we don't necessarily know it. It's like that kind of info that just pops up when you least expect it. Sure. What we lack is a mastery of the material, but we've sort of found this survey of the material that's been, I have to say, one of the best parts of my last several months. Me too. It's like, especially in quarantine, it's just really opened my eyes, I think, to just like, (laughs) like we say in the opening, not facetiously, really, like, wonderment and enthusiasm. I guess my being in the world has only been um, improved by opening my eyes to all the creatures around me and that I share this wonderful world with. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I guess through our very surface level study of animals, I've definitely learned more about myself and I've considered different aspects of myself Yes, and different aspects of this world that we live in. Yeah, like your shrimp journey. Yeah, my shrimp journey. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a fan of insects generally at this moment in my life, but I'm (laughs) intrigued by them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's all you can ask for. Yeah, so that's been I I mean, you know, five stars. And then also just on a personal note, doing this has been such a worthy artistic practice, I guess you could say. Like we make this thing every week. We meet every week. We kind of hold ourselves and each other to that. Yes. And then we've been making this thing, like producing this thing. And now I find myself doing more work with audio and I never would have been able to do that kind of stuff without the skills that I'd learned from doing this show in terms of the actual production of it. And so for me, at least, creatively, this has been such a godsend because it really set me up for the beginning of this quarantine when all the gigs stopped and yeah. Nobody wanted a drummer to come be in the same room with them. Right. Which is something that was already kind of hard to get people to agree to anyways, <laughs> you know, especially to you. pay you for it. I mean, my God. 
people are surrounded by music constantly and define themselves by the music that they like, but that never really seems to be the music that musicians are actually trying to make to survive. Right. Of course. Which is a separate issue entirely. But just having this show in particular and this regular weekly meeting very much eased the transition into a sort of exclusively digital fixed media production process, which is what I'm doing now. So I just have to say that as well. This has been a very good thing for me and for my mental health. And I imagine that you feel the same way, although I don't want to speak for you. No, it's it's very true. And I would just encourage anyone out there, any of our listeners, if you have an idea about something that you want to make, just make it mm-hmm. and just start doing it. You know, there's always going to be moments where you wish you could go back and do something, but letting go of those is an important part of the creative process. Yes. And also, I mean, it's not going to exist unless you make it. Right. You know, you kind of have to just do it. It's so true. I mean, it's very easy to say just do it. But, I mean, that's the way you get things done. I think also, I mean, to kind of segue into my weekend animals a little bit, I love seeing other people explore their animal love with the same amount of vim and vigor as we do. Perfect example being, I'm a little late on this, but I just came across this article in the New York Times about Fat Bear Week. Are you familiar with this? I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Fat Bear Week this year took place September 30th through October 6th at the Katmai National Park and Preserve in southern Alaska. So it's essentially where they uh, construct this kind of like March Madness bracket with all the fat bears in their preserve. And like all the bears are given different names and they they have like bios online so you can go on and read and like vote for your favorite fat bear. Uh-huh. <laughs> the pictures are fantastic. But this year's winner was Bear 747, <laughs> like the plane, <laughs> a.k.a. the Earl of Avoir Dupois. Oh. And he beat out runner-up 32 Chunk. <laughs> and you got to see these pictures. So essentially, it's just like these bears right before they're going to go into hibernation where they don't eat for months and months and months on end. So they rely on these fat stores. So they're doing like a year's worth of eating in like six months, essentially. And they get real big. And it's really really cute. <laughs> I loved last year's winner, 435 Holly. And this was like her little tagline. She's fat. She's fabulous. Long live the queen of corpulence. <laughs> but <laughs> I just, oh, the, fa- the, the thought that somebody takes the amount of time to like write bios for these bears, to name them creatively, to set up the bracket and to do this whole like web page about it. I'm like, see, these are our people. Yeah. I just, I I um identify with them spiritually so much. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. And it's like also, I think we, it wasn't as big of a deal this year because there wasn't really fashion week, but the people running the, um, the Instagram account at Wild Bird Fund on the Upper West Side do like a pigeon fashion week every year. Mm. And like, they <laughs> write these hilarious blurbs about like the plumage on these different pigeons and it's adorable. But anyway- Again, spiritual kindred spirits. <laughs> I think that what we've found, and I think that how others are too, is that this sort of ability to project oneself onto an animal or project these kind of human character characteristics onto an animal yes. is, is an easier process than doing that with other humans, I guess. Yes. Plus, humans are 
boring. Animals have like fur and scales and feathers and all kinds of fun things that we can be like extra whimsical about. Right. Exactly. That's the world I want to live in personally. Yeah. Well, same. Well, Meredith, I mean, do you want to just jump right into it? I feel like we've had a very excited intro. I know. I think we should just get to the task at hand. The task at wing. The task at talon. The task at fin. The task at um, hoof. Yeah. Well, let's then <laughs> that case, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Are you ready? Okay. Taxona you. Taxona we. Taxona who? Taxona me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's alive. Philo. Cordata. I'm back in the spine sector. Class. Amphibia. It lerves water. Order. Orodella. Salamanders. Family. Salamandidre. Newts and true salamanders. Genus. Tetritus. Crested and marbled newts. Species. Cristatus. The northern crested newt. It's also called the crested newt or also the warty newt. (laughs) (sighs) Woo. That was kind of a tricky one. Yeah. I mean, amphibians are tricky. Are they in water or are they not? Well, they're both. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So this episode is releasing on Election Day, which we're all praying about. Right. But we also still have this spooky energy because we're recording it in October. So we kind of agreed to do a hybrid episode of spooky October creatures but with a little bit of a presidential twist. So the presidential twist is not coming in my segment. It's coming later. The spooky Halloween newt moment (laughs) is because of Macbeth, the Scottish play, where they discuss the eye of the newt and the toe of the frog as being integral ingredients in their sort of potion moment. Yes. So I was like, well, what newt would they be talking about in Scotland? So I did a little bit of newt research. I love it. And found the northern crested newt, Mm. which is native to Great Britain, northern and central continental Europe, and parts of western Siberia. It's a relatively large newt. It's about 6.3 inches long. The males are about 5.3 inches. And rarely individuals have been measured at 8 inches. The back and sides are dark brown. The belly is yellow to orange with dark blotches. And it's fairly slender. And it gets its name because during the breeding season, males will develop a conspicuous jagged crest on their back and their tail. That kind of, it's like very Stegosaurus vibe. (laughs) I love that. Stegosaurus is always my favorite dinosaur, but I I can't really tell you why now. But at the time, uh, yeah. So I like this. Steggies are pretty cool. Yeah. So let's do this tax facts. It was originally described as the Triton Christatus by Joseph Nicholas Laurenti in 1768. Triton, the genus, was already used by good old Carly Poo Linnaeus for a genus of sea snails, which he had described 10 years before. So the new genus name, Triturus, was introduced in 1815 by Constantine Samuel Raffinesque. There were over 40 scientific names introduced over time that are now considered as synonyms for this species. So I guess you could say it was erroneously described. That's my interpretation of that, is that 40 scientific names were introduced for this same species over time. I wonder why. Like, why was everyone so eager to, like, name this newt? I'm not sure. (laughs) Name that newt. But now there's seven accepted species of crested newts, with the northern crested newt being the most widespread. Okay. 
And I would argue, ergo, the most likely to be included in a witch's potion. I think that's cool. I like that idea of kind of um, interdisciplinary study where you kind of go through, you know, these canons, say, of like English literature and note the animals and what they could be potentially. I think that's a fun kind of study. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's kind of like a doctoral thesis of for somebody that's studying literature but has a strong background in biology. Yeah, yeah. But I know somebody who's studies the classics. Uh-huh. They're working on a book that's essentially about the botanical life in one particular historical figure's writings. Yeah, yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, tax facts. Kingdom Animalia, adoy. <laughs> Phylum Chordata. Apparently, I'm leaving my arthropods behind. I'm now back in the spine zone. That's okay, Mike. We've got time for more arthropods. Uh-huh. It's the class amphibia. It's been a minute since we've done an amphibian. Mm -hmm. They have spines. They're ectothermic tetrapods, so they do not generate their own heat. Right. They're similar to lizards and reptiles superficially. Right. Generally, in amphibians, there's a metamorphosis. So we we think of frogs, toads, salamanders, newts. Mm -hmm. They'll have a larval stage where they have gills. And then they'll go through a metamorphosis process and the adults develop lungs. Right. Notable exceptions are your friend, the axolotl. Axolotl, Which has that sort of blue fringy neck piece that's their youthful gills. Yes. Amphibians will also use their skin as a second respiratory system. And some small terrestrial salamanders and frogs lack lungs and entirely use their skins to breathe. That's so crazy. An important distinction between reptiles and amphibians is that reptiles are amniotes, and that means that they do not require water bodies to breed. Mm. So humans are amniotes. Amniotes are an entire clade. Okay. And so those are creatures who lay eggs or have eggs inside of them that contain all of the water needed for the little mm. uh, developing baby. <laughs> and yes. and an, an amniote would lay their eggs in water. Got it. An amniote. So, okay. Reptiles are, and I guess mammals, are amniotes. Mm-hmm. And, and birds. And birds. And amphibians are amniotes. <laughs> it's amniotes and then anamniotes, like A-N-A-M. I hear you. Okay. So like anti-amniotes. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Gotcha. The family, Salamandridae, <laughs> newts and true salamanders. Mostly in the Northern Hemisphere, I learned a new concept, biogeographic realm okay. or ecozone. So I think there are eight, if I remember right. Salamanders live in the Holarctic realm, which is like North America, Europe, Asia, China, like across the top and then kind of down a ways. Like if you look at an earth of a map, the whole Arctic realm seems to be quite a bit. And then down into South America, the Neotropic realm. So I guess that would be new tropical New world tropical. So I'm a little curious about this biogeographic realm or ecozone concept, and I'm excited to open a line of inquiry for all our clubbies out there. (laughs) These salamanders in the family, Salamandridae, have tails in both their larval and adult stage. Okay. 
as opposed to like frogs that kind of evolve away the tail. Right. Frogs and toads are anurans. Right. The family anura. That's where salamanders right. and newts go to salamandry day and frogs and frogs and toads go to anura. Got it. Okay. Genus Triturus, crested and marbled newts. They typically have a green-black color pattern on the marbled newts, which is kind of, they kind of look cool. I mean, it's it sure sounds like it would, you know, green and black kind of marbled together. Yeah, I like that. And then the crested newts, which again are the ones where the males develop the stegosaurus spiny moment. Mm-hmm. They're dark brown, and they typically have a yellow or orange underside, and as stated, the crested newts have this jagged seam on their back. The males do. Let's talk life cycle. Let's do it. The eggs hatch. Larval development happens in the first year. And then the juveniles will pass for another year or two before reaching maturity. In the far north and at higher elevations, it can take even longer. The larval and juvenile stages are the riskiest for the newts. But if they can survive past that, they typically live seven to nine years. And some individuals in the wild have been recorded reaching 17 years of age. They spend about seven months of the year on land, which is called their terrestrial phase. And then they return to the water each year for breeding, typically in March, once the temperatures stay above five degrees Celsius or 40 degrees Fahrenheit, a few degrees above the freezing temperature for water. Right. When they're in the aquatic phase, they're mostly nocturnal, and they'll prefer deeper parts of the water body where they can hide under vegetation. They do occasionally need to surface to breathe, which is, you know, a risky moment. Sure. The aquatic phase is definitely helpful for reproduction, obviously, because they're anamniotes, Mm -hmm. but also there's just more abundant prey. So the juveniles will return to the water even before they are breeding age just to gorge on some, you know, miscellaneous food items. Like various aquatic invertebrates, the larvae of other amphibians. When they're larvae, they may eat smaller individuals of their same species. Oh, no. How spooky. Cannibal newts. Whoa. So the rest of the time, the seven months on land, the terrestrial phase, that's when the newts use hiding places like logs, barks, planks, stone walls, or small mammal burrows. And several individuals might occupy the same refuge at the same time. They typically stay close to their aquatic breeding site. They are likely to disperse no further than one kilometer or about a half, a little more than a half mile. And they will travel 100 meters or about 100 yards in one night. I wonder what they're doing. Looking for food? They're, yeah, they're, they're looking for more hospitable environments and They will eat mainly invertebrates like earthworms and other annelids. (laughs) Insects, woodlice, snails, and slugs. The bright orange or yellow underside is a warning coloration. Mm -hmm. And if provoked or attacked, the newt will typically roll up and secrete a milky substance, which I didn't really find more about, but intrigued me as a line of inquiry, like newt defense mechanisms. And it makes me think of our annelids who are known for secreting substances like your poison frog from very early Mm -hmm. experience together. And I hadn't really thought about that with salamanders before, but they're pretty closely related insofar as they're both amphibians. So I'm curious what the sort of secretion life is like for salamanders and newts. Secretion life. 
It's like a hashtag secretion life. Ugh. Yeah. All the shirts hang up next to the salt life shirts. Salt life, secretion <laughs> life. That's my bumper sticker. Secretion life. Ugh. So the breeding, I know this is a part you're excited to hear about. You know me. They have a complex courtship display where the males will attract a female through specific body movements and will wave pheromones to her. <laughs> With their weird little suction cup hands, like waving them. <laughs> yeah. And they will do this from, their, they're very territorial, so they'll do this from a little small patch of clear ground, which they will use as a lek or courtship arena. So we've encountered the term yes. now as well, again. I love it. It's not just for butterflies. Lekking is not just for butterflies. <laughs> Once they're successful, the dudes will then guide the female over a spermatophore that they deposit on the ground, which she'll then take up with her cloaca. Oh. So like a little scorpion moment. Yeah, definitely. The eggs are for- So he essentially- I'm sorry. So I just have to like- So he'll like leave his little packet on the ground, (laughs) and then he'll like lovingly guide her over to it so she can pick it up with her her sex organs, aka cloaca. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding of it, that the male finds a little small patch of clear ground, which he uses as his lecking arena. Yes. And then when a lady agrees to the lek, when she's down to lek, then he'll deposit his spermatophore on the ground and then guide her over it. Gotcha. Does he take her by the hand? I hope so. Cute. <laughs> if only they had petty palps. I know. It's like laying the coat. It's like that human gesture of like the man laying down his coat for her so he can walk her over it. She doesn't have to muddy her heels. Sure. Sure. This time he's Except- laying down his uh, nuptial gift. Yeah. He's definitely trying to muddy her heels. <laughs> So after she receives this spermatophore, <laughs> the eggs are fertilized internally, and then the female lovingly deposits each egg individually, usually folding them into leaves of aquatic plants. Oh. <laughs> she spends about five minutes for each egg. Oh. Depositing each egg. Wow. They'll usually lay about 200 eggs per season. Five minutes per egg. Wow. It's a total of a thousand minutes of egg laying or 16.66 hours of egg laying, which sounds like a lot, but like in an entire season, like if you have five months to do that, that's like really not that bad. Yeah, I get, yeah, when you put it in that perspective, definitely. All right. Embryos are usually light colored. They're very short. They're like two millimeters, which is about a, it's that's like less than a tenth of an inch. That's like a sixteenth of an inch almost kind of ish. They are in a six millimeter jelly capsule, <laughs> which distinguishes them from eggs of other coexisting newt species that are smaller and darker colored. So you can also kind of just identify the eggs. And and my multivitamin. Huh. Uh-huh. And then there is a genetic circumstance, particularity, it says, a genetic particularity that causes 50% of the embryos to die. So of the 200 eggs that the lady salamander lays, 100 of them are just going to die before they even hatch. Oh, I wonder why that is. Or like what that, that's like an evolutionary 
thing or? I have no idea. It seems strange because usually you'd think that it's just an issue of like get as many as possible. Right. But maybe it's a maybe that's like a check and balance system with habitat or sure. maybe that's just a something that wasn't edited out, you know. <laughs> yeah. Over time. After two to five weeks, the larvae hatch from these eggs that have been so delicately nestled into the leaves of aquatic plants by a caring mother. The forelimbs develop first and then the back legs develop later. Crested newt larvae are mostly nectonic, which means they swim freely in the water column. And then just before they convert to land mode, they <laughs> resorb their external gills. So at this stage, they can be, they're like about three inches long, a little less than three inches long. Mm -hmm. The metamorphosis into terrestrial efts takes place two to four months after hatching, again, depending on temperature. The complete survival of larvae from hatching to metamorphosis is probably around 4%. Whoa. So, okay. Wow. Yeah. Total, overall. And then in unfavorable conditions, the larva may delay their development and overwinter in the water, although that seems to be less common than in small bodies. Okay. So that's interesting because that was true of some other amphibian that we encountered where they were able to like hatch from their eggs quickly to escape predators or something like that. Like there's this concept of the metamorphosis schedule, but it can be subverted and shortcuts can be taken or long detours can be taken depending on environmental Mm -hmm. conditions, which I think is very interesting. And that's really the extent of my newt news. (laughs) Newt news. I like that. I have not thought much about newts, I must say. Me neither. Well, me neither. thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I think in general, I think we've only done four anurans in our 100 animals. I feel like other creatures are definitely more represented in the animal fan club canon. But I'm very curious about this now because there's clearly like systems here that are not, I, I guess that some of the systems that are in place for the amphibians remind me more of insects than of other vertebrates. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes to like their manipulation of life stages, like from the axolotl just always remaining in like a juvenile state to. Right. Right. Like you said, conditions not being favorable, so they just kind of hold off on being born. (laughs) Who knew that was a possibility? Right. Well, and then I'm still captivated with, because the axolotl, for those that missed the axolotl episode, the axolotl doesn't develop lungs fully. It kind of stops with this sort of gill frill thing around its neck, you know? (laughs) Gill frills. Yes, yes. But then in laboratory environments, they've been able to kind of further the evolution of the axolotl, like remove the mechanism that prevents the axolotl from fully metamorphosizing and like rendered a fully metamorphosized axolotl, which is just well, they some science fiction stuff, you know? Well, they do it by, they inject them with iodine, which right. like triggers the rest of the metamorphosis process that other, say, um, salamanders or their close relatives that other salamanders will go through. Uh-huh. So it's just bizarre. All of it's bizarre, and yeah. I still can't wrap my head around it. 
Yeah, there's it's like there's something magical about Absolutely. amphibians. So. Yes. Well, that's uh, that's it. Any questions? Um, no, not at the moment. Well, then that's a perfect time for a break. Yeah. Hey, Raquel, how's it going? I haven't seen you since the autumnal equinox. Sure haven't, Freddie. It's going pretty good. Getting pumped for winter solstice. Me too, Raquel. I'm a little nervous about this year, though. Last season, my winter coat was a bit, well, inadequate. And I'm feeling nervous about another winter of shivering. Hold up, Freddie. Have you heard about Brand Clubby's new Parka Pills? Winter coat supplements for members of the Carnivora family? Wait, Brand Clubby has expanded into the mammal supplement sector? They sure have. And as always, their product does not disappoint. Well, tell me more. They use a special synthesized keratin compound paired with vitamins E, B17, and D. All vitamins that are important to hair growth. It provides three stages of texture. A soft, down-like undercoat. Mmm, cozy. A mid-length, water-resistant coat to help keep you dry. That's important in cold weather. And a luxurious and luminous outer coat to impress all of your friends. And blend in with the luminous, snowy surroundings of our natural habitat. Exactly! Wow, Fran Clubby really has our needs considered. They sure do. For more info, head on over to the Brand Clubby web portal. I bet I could even stop by a Superstore location, assuming there's one in my area. There likely is. Brand Clubby is investing in brick-and-mortar locations, so all your needs are nearby. Amazing. I don't think this day could get any better. Well, brace yourself. Save 20% at checkout with the code UNDERCOAT20. Oh my God, I'm heading to my nearest retailer presently. Stay fleet, Fox friend. Presidential. Pets, I wish you had also met. 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 Pets, I wish you also met. Pets, I wish you Pets, I wish you had also met. I just love <laughs> the lack of enthusiasm about things presidential. I think, ugh, sick of it. It's all shitty. It's all rigged. It's so shitty. I hate it. Anyhow. Yeah, I do. I'm ready it. for it to be over. But, you know, well, yeah, I'm praying that there's a, a shift in leadership, which is to say I hope that there is leadership in the country right. beginning in 2021. Whew. Here's to that. But, you know, I guess let's look to the past and look at what pooches were there for other presidents or yeah. creatures, rather. Well, let's go in chronological order, I guess. Mine is from the mid 1800s. Oh, mine would be, I guess, starting in 1926. Okay. So Abraham Lincoln had a dog, had several creatures. One dog was a yellow mongrel. A a yellow mongrel? Yes. Which is to say that it was a mutt. Okay. You know, like not a clearly defined species. I would say it was Labrador-like. Yeah. Blonde Lab. And it was a member of the Lincoln family for a number of years prior to the presidency. Okay. After Abraham Lincoln became president, this particular dog was really spooked by loud noises and not really into large groups Aww. of people or fireworks. And so being aware of the hustle and bustle of Washington, D.C. and how many people were going to be coming in and out of the White House all the time... Abraham and Mary Todd decided to leave this dog in Springfield, 
Illinois, where the family had lived, in the care of their family friend, John R. Roll. And Lincoln gave Mr. Roll a sofa that was a favorite of this dog and gave specific instructions that the dog was to have the run of the house. It was not to be scolded for tracking mud. And it was to be allowed to wander around the family dinner table and be fed scraps. (laughs) Sounds like dream dog stuff. Yeah, it was pretty cushy dog life. Yeah. So this dog stayed with the Roll family for the rest of his life. After Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, this dog did travel to Lincoln's funeral. Oh, gosh, that's so sad. Hmm. And unfortunately, this dog met a sad plight where it was also assassinated by Charlie Plank, a half-drunken man who was one day whittling a pine stick when the dog came over and, as usual, bounded towards, you know, just so much love to give, was just like, hey, Charlie. And Charlie was super drunk, and so he thrust his knife into this poor dog, which then ran away and uh, the lifeless body of the creature was discovered under an old church a month later. Oh my gosh. So also a sad story. This dog did have a name. Yes. And that name was Fido. Whoa. And this dog is the reason why Fido is a generic term for dogs presently in our culture. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. Distinguished presidential pet Fido, the original Fido, the OF. Oh my gosh. My favorite coffee shop's in Nashville, Fido as well. Wow. That is tragic. What is freaking wrong with people? Well, he was super, I mean, drunk. The last thing I would ever do, I mean, I know this is me, but if I saw a dog when I was super drunk, it would just be like a cuddle puddle. is what it would be. True, yeah. I have to say that I've actually been around you and dogs while you were drunk. (laughs) And I don't think that that dog, or those dogs rather, were ever really under threat of violence. Exactly. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? When was that? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I'm sure it's happened several times. Of course. Yeah. Like, you and I have been drunk together and we've also definitely been around dogs together. All right. Well, I have a little bit more of a uplifting animal pet tale from the White House. So this is Rebecca the raccoon of the Coolidge administration. Perfect. (laughs) So the story of Rebecca begins when she was brought to the White House from Mississippi for Thanksgiving dinner. Ew. Who is eating raccoon for Thanksgiving? Okay. That's gross. Ugh. No, thank you. Wait, not invited as a guest, like invited to be served as food. But she soon became a guest. So they decided not to eat her, but instead to make her a pet. And this was in 1926. And they named her Rebecca. (laughs) Rebecca the raccoon. That's also a sturdy pet name. It really is. I'm I'm pretty into it. And they actually brought her to a companion that they named Reuben the raccoon, but he escaped and no one could find him. (laughs) That's a (laughs) animated feature raccoon escapes the white house (laughs) but it seemed like she was pretty much the pet of grace first lady grace coolidge and there are plenty of pictures online of grace like holding rebecca the raccoon up like a big old cat in like press photos and stuff and so rebecca was walked on a leash outdoors but in the white house she actually had free reign she was able to kind of wander freely but she was known to be mischievous and unscrew light bulbs, open cabinets, and unpot 
indoor plants. But I do have a quote from First Lady Grace Coolidge. We had a house made for her in one of the large trees with a wire fence built around it for protection. We kept her chained when out of doors, but in the house she had her liberty. She was a mischievous, inquisitive party, and we had to keep watch of her when she was in the house. She enjoyed nothing better than being placed in a bathtub with a little water in it and given a cake of soap with which to play. In this fashion, she would amuse herself for an hour or more. <laughs> splish, splash, I was taking a bath, all with my raccoon on a Saturday night. Crazy. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath with my raccoon on a Saturday night. Got it. So at the end of the administration, so this is where it's a better end for Rebecca. She, um, so in 1929, when the Coolidge's left the White House, they actually donated Rebecca to what would become the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Here's hoping she got good treatment at the zoo, but zoos at that time were ugh, probably not so great. So who knows? But she had a great, it seems like she had a very pampered life while she was alive. Um, she loved eating shrimp and eggs. In the following Hoover administration, a wild opossum moved into Rebecca's vacant tree house, and the Hoover family adopted it and named it Billy the Possum. <laughs> so I'm just like, where is this humor and, like, whimsicality in the White House now? It just doesn't exist. Like, these were such simpler times, to put it lightly. Well, sure, sure. I mean, of course, you know, asterisk in terms of the simpler times aspect of it. But I agree, there's no whimsy, fun whimsy at least. It's mostly just terrifying. Right. The type of whimsy that we've experienced in the last four years has mostly just been filled with terror and there's no even attempt to insert this well, level yeah. of Of course whimsy. there isn't. I don't even think there's a pet at the White House right now. I mean, that's how they treat Baron, I'm sure. Pet. Yeah, so I mean... There's that. Yeah. That was great. We should do themed pets I wish you had also met more often. I love, that's a great idea. Because we will exhaust our friends with pets one of these days. <laughs> For real. All right. All right. Presidential. Text on a you. Text on a we. Text on a who. Text on a me. Kingdom. Animalia. Get used to it. Phylum. Cordata. Spooky skeleton spines. Class. Aves. Every week is bird week. Order. Passera forms half of all bird species. Family. Corvid day. Ooh la la, these birds are smart. Genus. Corvus. Crows, ravens, and rooks. Species. Corvus. Corax. Once upon a midnight jury, while I pondered weak and weary, doth quote the raven. It's more like quack, 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 as we'll learn. Oh. Yes. So, kind of in keeping with our, we're just riding the Halloween spookies a little late this year, but that's okay. Everything's topsy-turvy in the year 2020. One more spooky creature feature. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope that it doesn't stay that way. And I really, 
have been wanting to do either a crow or a raven or one of the corvids because I've heard for years through various media and podcasts and things just about like the crazy levels of intelligence of the corvids and weird rituals that they have. And so I really wanted to do one. But then I was like, you know, do I do a crow or do I do a raven? And I have a really good friend whose name is Raven, friend of the pod. Hey, girl. Hey, Raven. (laughs) (laughs) Raven. Um, So I was like, I'll just go with Raven as an homage to her. (laughs) I'm really glad that I did because they, in our um, creature yearbook, like the superlatives, there's a lot that go, I think, to the raven. They're just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And I'm so glad to have this opportunity to present. In our Degrassi High (laughs) recast entirely with animals. Oh, that's a fun, that's a fun segment. (laughs) Recast? (laughs) Who would play, who would play Drake in the wheelchair? (laughs) (laughs) Who's to say? <laughs> we'll think about it. Well, one of those little puppies that has <laughs> like the back wheels with the wheelchair. Like a quadriplegic corgi. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man, we got to stop. We're talking about Corvids here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but this isn't this isn't a Degrassi podcast. This no. is an animal podcast. Right. Oh, man. Okay. So... Anyhow, I probably don't need to go into a lot of the reasons why like crows and ravens, ravens specifically are associated with spooky times and like Halloween. But like the turkey vulture that I did last week, it's another animal that's often associated kind of with death. You know, you see a lot of illustrations of crows kind of like hanging out at the gallows or, you know, being known for like pecking out human eyeballs. Or if you think about the um, Maleficent, from Sleeping Beauty, her little henchman was either a crow or a raven. Sure. Yeah, so they're this, they get a lot of association with death, but they also, like in many um, animal folklore canons, they are associated with the trickster, which at once is like a good and a bad thing. Like cultures have great respect for the trickster, but they're also, I think, perplexed and a little bit fearful of the trickster as well. So that's about all I'll get to as far as like the Halloween stuff because there's really so much freaking info about ravens that is that we just must get through. Yeah, let's keep it moving. Keep it moving. Keep those wings flapping, girls. Okay, so tax facts real quick. So we know Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, Class Aves, wings, wings, wings. We've covered this many times. I love my class Aves. So order Passeriformes. It's good to talk about this because Passeriformes make up half of all bird species. And so Passer, I think, plus forms is Latin for sparrow-shaped. So this is referring to perching birds and songbirds. And often Passeriformes are going to have a very similar talon or foot structure where you essentially have three little talons in the front and then one in the back, which is ideal for grasping and perching. You can kind of think of like a parrot. No, actually parrots have a different arrangement. Don't think about parrots. Scratch that. Well, yeah, I was going to say, but parrot, I was thinking of parrots and I was like, parrots only have two in the front, right? Yeah, theirs is like a different, um, there's terminology for all the different, um, I guess, arrangements and configurations of bird talons. But I know parrots actually don't fit into this category, but I forget exactly what 
the particular arrangement is. They have like a longer claw in the front, I believe, than the passeriforms uh, do. But we can, I mean, uh-huh. sometime when we do parrots, we can talk more about Talon ground plans. Sure, sure. Yeah, I love that. Talon architecture. <laughs> Tally tech. Oh, are you going to school this year? Tally tech. <laughs> well, my major's in molecular botany, but my minor's in tally tech. Okay, so the order Passeriformes, right? Perching birds, kind of think of it. It's the largest order of birds. And then we get to the family of Corvidae, kind of known. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer, but it's the, the crow family. But it's that's, like I said, a misnomer because this also is going to include jays, like blue jays, magpies, tree pa- pies, tree pies, chuffs. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna Chuff. we're gonna have to talk about chuffs sometime, and then nutcrackers. So all these birds are very different morphologically, as I'm sure you can imagine. Just thinking about comparing like a blue jay to a crow, um, but they are all marked by a particularly high intelligence. So again, helping us kind of reorient the term bird brain. In this case, it means you're very smart to be bird brained. Sure. And then we move on to the genus of Corvus. So these are going to be the medium to large corvids, such as crows, ravens, and rooks. And then there's 40, 45 species, and they occur in all temperate continents. So get out of here, Antarctica. All temperate continents except South America, which is interesting. There's no corvus representation in South America. Huh. Isn't that weird? I'm not sure why that is. They just never got down there. They must have just liked that northern hemisphere, baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we get to our species, the Corvus corax, the common raven. So these are found all across the northern hemisphere. So they're very cosmopolitan, the most widely distributed of all the corvids. And here is where we can just get going on some of these amazing birdie facts. So they're one of the largest of the passerines. So the, the sparrow-shaped birds, the perching birds. They're about like 25 inches in length generally, and they can be up to like four pounds. Actually, just for the sake of comparison and visualization as I go through this, since at least here in New York and in my experience, I would encounter crows way more often than ravens, as it turns out. And they are different. They're different species completely. But they're like cousins. They're very similar. Sure. In general characteristics. But um, so we've got... Ravens, which are up to four pounds, but crows generally get to about like one and a half pounds. So ravens are a lot larger than crows, really, in a side-by-side comparison. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Some other unique things about them. They are unique in that they mate for life, um, and each pair will work together to establish a very clear territory, and they essentially hang out there for their life. And their lives can, um, they're generally going to be in the wild, I think up to like 15 years generally, but some have been noted to live up to 23 years. And famously, there is a colony or a group of ravens that have taken up residence in the Tower of London for centuries. And some of those have lived up to 40 years. Wow. Yeah. And there is even a little bit of like superstition that, you know, the kingdom or the the empire of England would fall if there was ever a point at which the ravens left the tower of london uh-huh like uh-huh. what could be yeah, more that sounds spooky so spooky <laughs> soup spooks so they're decidedly not migratory yeah generally not nope they hang out in one spot hmm. 
Yeah. So that is very different than a lot of the birds we've talked about that are very migratory. So other attributes of their appearance. So compared to crows who um, will have kind of like longer, sharper, pointier beaks, the ravens have short, thicker beaks and they often have a little hook on the end. So if you ever see a picture of a big old blackbird and it has that little like hook over the bottom beak portion, you're looking at a raven. And also, mm. you'll see on ravens opposed to crows what are called these rough throat hackles. So the feathers around their kind of lower throat and chest, their hackles, they're going to look a little rougher. And so in flight, we've got on the raven a diamond-shaped tail versus the wedge-shaped tail on the crow. And crows, when they're in flight, will be flapping a lot more. Crows just generally are a lot more, like, nervous like when they land, they look kind of unsure of themselves. They flap a lot. Whereas ravens are a bit more, they just kind of look more in control. So they soar in the sky. They don't flap much, unlike the crows. And they're able to soar because like the turkey vultures, they kind of take advantage of um, thermals. So those kind of hot air columns that'll kind of help them soar high into the sky without having to do any exerting much in terms of flapping. Sure. So some of these things while flying, they'll actually do this weird thing. So they'll be soaring, soaring, soaring along. And then all of a sudden they'll like tuck their wings into their bodies real fast and kind of flip over and then dive towards the earth. And then they'll right themselves and just kind of pick up with their soaring again, which is really interesting. And that, that doesn't seem to have any real like purpose other than just to kind of like play in the air. They kind of take, it, take advantage of these wind currents, these thermals, and ride them like roller coasters, Sure, essentially. Sure. And they'll get together in, like, huge groups, too, to do this. They, like, it's a form of play, a form of entertainment for them. And also, they love, like, little objects, a lot of times, like, shiny objects, and they'll fly around with them, and they'll pass them from their beak to their talons, like, midair. You can see them kind of, like, hold their wings out and suspend themselves midair and kind of, like go from like beak to talon, talon to beak. And oftentimes it's like a form of like teasing uh-huh. another raven saying like, you can't catch it. You can't catch it. So super fun. I love it. So moving on to vocalizations, ravens also like other high intelligence birds are excellent mimics. Whereas like crows aren't really mimics. They just do their normal like, ah, ah. it's pretty much all you'll hear. Whereas from ravens, you'll get a lot of different sounds. Say you're out in the wild where crows and ravens cohabitate. The crow, like I said, you'll hear, ah! it'll be more high-pitched, whereas the raven will be more like, gronk, gronk, gronk. It's more of like a weird low squawk, uh-huh. almost. Sure. But in addition to that, they can mimic like all kinds of other stuff. They, they mimic like human laughter. They mimic cats and dogs, chainsaws, toilet flushing, like clicks and clacks, like all kinds of sounds they can create. Okay, in terms of predation, very similar to the turkey vulture in that they have very few natural predators, but the nests and the fledglings are always going to be the most vulnerable to like other, right? you know, birds of prey, like owls or eagles, for instance. Do they also nest on the cold, hard ground like the turkey vulture? They don't. They don't. They actually have the pleasure of a, a delicious nest. That's lovely. (laughs) Unlike those savage turkey vultures. And then, okay, when it comes to breeding, like I said, they mate for life. And um, though I did read something that like 
a an unknown male raven will come into the nest sometimes when the when the home male raven is away. <laughs> oh, uh oh, look out! To fix the cable, huh? He's the pool boy raven. So they will court early. Like little babies might start courting early, but they're not going to pair typically for another two to three years. Courtship displays include, like I mentioned, like these aerial acrobatics, intelligence displays, and bringing food. I mean, all of those things would work on me, obviously. And when it comes to feeding, like many species that are adapted to eating pretty much anything, they do well. Species that are adaptable and not super specific in their food needs tend to just be very successful in evolutional evolutionarily, uh-huh. I guess you could say. I could. They're omnivorous, opportunistic. So they, like turkey vultures, like to feed on carrion. They'll also eat bugs and other invertebrates, cereal grains, all kinds of things. They eat it all, really. Um other bird eggs sometimes will actually steal bird eggs from other nests. It's kind of a bummer, but, you know, it's a bird-eat-bird world out there. It is. So now we can kind of talk about, like, the coolest part, which is their intelligence. The ravens, the common raven, has the largest brain of any bird species. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Like, relative to body weight? Yes. Yeah. And so this allows them to really specialize in things like problem solving and communication. And this is what I thought was super interesting is they practice what's called displacement, which is kind of a, I guess, like a psychological descriptor for the ability to communicate about objects or events that are distant in time and space. Uh So an example of this would be like, say a raven's like flap, flap, flapping. Oh no, they wouldn't flap. They'd be soaring along and they see a food source, like say a freshly killed bison, bison, bison. And they're like, oh, I got to go tell Larry about this. So they can go fly back to Larry and say, however, I'm not sure how they would actually say this, but it would be like one of those like. Probably in French. Yeah. (laughs) Bonjour. So you'd be like. And then that would be translated to Larry, guess what? I just found a dead bison. Let's go eat it. And then Larry would understand that. And then they'd like fly over and. And then have some bison. Granted, because like turkey vultures, they can't really rip open the flesh themselves. They have to wait for another animal to do that. Mm. Which brings me to another fun thing that you would like, Mike. Is that often they kind of pair up with wolves. Awesome. Ravens and wolves, creature pals forever. (laughs) So what will happen is ravens will... (laughs) Either know to follow wolves to the site of a kill and then kind of wait for the wolves to um, kind of rip open the carcass so they can get in there with their weaker beaks and eat what they want. But sometimes ravens will call to wolves to bring them to the kill site because they need them, like I said, to rip open the carcass. I'm not sure, like, what that form of communication is. I'm sure they can mimic wolf calls and bring the wolves to the carcass, like I said, Hmm. which is just really crazy. (laughs) 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 So some other things that they practice is they'll watch where other animals will, like, 
uh, stash their food. They, like, look for other animals' food caches, and then they'll go back and, like, raid it. Or even more interesting is that they'll pretend to create their own food cache. Like, they'll literally, like, pantomime putting food into, like, a food store somewhere to throw off other animals. To essentially, like, trick them into thinking that there's food there. But there really isn't any food there. Awesome. (laughs) And then, as I mentioned earlier, that they love to play. They engage in games with other animals. So they'll do, like, a kind of, like try to catch me, try to catch me. Like they'll actually play with wolves. I need to look up videos of this because I'm obsessed with this like animal pal moment. And they'll even like make toys for themselves. So they'll like get sticks and find ways to play with them. And like I said, they like to gather and kind of ride along these wind currents and get some adrenaline rush, like the same way we do as humans riding a roller coaster so it's just all super fun. Yeah, that's very The raven fun. life. Yeah. So, I mean, that's about all I have. There's so much more that could be said. Um, and, you know, all this anti-crow talk, I would like to go back and do crows at some point, too, because, like, certain crows exhibit crazy intelligent behavior, like fashioning tools to help them get food. Like, I've seen experiments where they'll, like, literally, like, take a bendy piece of metal and bend it into a hook and then, like, suspend it down into a tube so as to, like, lift up a worm, like, on the hook. They fashion the tool and then use the tool. Amazing. It's just insane. And they, yeah, and they actually, some corvids, like jackdaws, they actually, like, pay attention to where a human is looking. They're kind of obsessed with looking at, like, human eyes. And then they like to focus in on whatever they think the human is looking at. Like, their ability to, like, and certain crows, like, come to recognize faces it's just endless. Like, they're strange yeah, intelligence. That's great. Yeah. So that's my that's my Raven presentation. Well, thank you, Meredith. I thought that was squawk-tastic. Oh, I thank you. Break time. All right. You ended your last segment with a turkey vulture hiss, for the record. Sensing a trend here. Today is the big day. Your plumes are impeccably preened. You strut proudly into the lack. You array your magnificent tail feathers. And you wait. A peahen is sure to pick you this time. You look great. Oh, but two peahens pass you over. It's okay, buddy. There are a few more ladies still on the prowl. Oh, well, two more have paired off. This leaves just one left. Don't screw this up. It's time to pull out the big guns. With Brand Clubby's new peacock rings. When your plumes need that extra push to seal the deal. Simply snap your snazzy peacock ring around one of your plumes. And just see how you stand a little taller. A little prouder. Behold, you are now the supreme cock of the flock. And with a wide array of styles, sizes, and colors, peacocks of every persuasion are sure to find the confidence they need. To catch the discerning eye of even the most picky of peahens. Or your money back. Get your very own brand clubby peacock ring today. It's the most patriotic of all the grains. <laughs> Which is oats. The oats. All right, well, we're in the feedback, so let's just open it up and dig on in. 
So Sarah from Kalamazoo wants to know, what's a Yak's favorite music? I love Yak's. I think that their favorite song would be Yakety Sax, <laughs> the classic. I agree. That's great. Yeah. I would say, you know, maybe this is a little on the nose, on the Yak nuzzle, muzzle, a little too on the yak muzzle, but I would think they would like Mongolian throat singing. Oh, yeah. Or a little, you know, some Tuvan throat singing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that is kind of what they're around in their, you know, natural habitat. So I'm sure they have an appreciation of it, but maybe it's like elevator music to them. And sometimes they just really, to get going, they turn on that old Boots Randolph yakety sax classic. You know, I think of... Bruce Valanche's response to a question. <laughs> what are three things that you can't do without? And his answer is the Andrews sisters. <laughs> I guess that my answer of Yakety Sacks <laughs> would be like the response given by the Bruce Valanche of Yaks. <laughs> but I think if you were to ask a typical yak, then they would go for the sort of throat singing yes. experience. Yes. Oh my gosh. And Bruce Valanche even kind of like has a yak vibe. Yeah. It's like the way his hair kind of like falls down over his face. Uh huh. Uh huh. That is. I've never Isn't that, that so funny? That's <laughs> great. Oh man. I did not think I was going to be talking about Bruce Valanche today. I'll say that. Yeah, neither did I. But hey, here we are. Bruce, if you're listening, send in a question. We'd love to hear from you. Oh yeah. We'd love to hear from you, Bruce. Big fan of your work. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, I think a fish position. We've got yakety sacks and Mongolian throat singing. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Derek from St. Petersburg asks, where is a lonely Desmond to find love? Well, Derek, I can say for one, um, come on over to Harlem. I won't disclose my address right here, but if you know a, a Desmond that's lonely and wants some love, send him my way. Yeah. Derek, go ahead and slide into the DMs at Animal Fan Club Pod on Instagram. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe we could arrange a sort of e-meeting yes. in our sort of socially distanced time. But I guess when travel's back. Maybe we can do an in-person meetup. Yeah. 90-day fiance, but with a Desmond. I don't need the full 90 days. Said with such confidence. <laughs> I know my heart. Okay, well, I guess a fish position. Harlem. Send them to Harlem, baby. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. So, next question. Diego from Bakersfield asks, do you think the red-eyed tree frog signed a consent form before his likeness was used in all of those rainforest marketing materials? No, I don't. I don't, Diego. Frogs can't hold pens, Diego. Yeah, eye of newt and toe of frog. It's not finger of frog. It's not dexterous, yeah. opposable thumb of frog. <laughs> exactly. Diego, I do love your question. I do love your looking out for the uh, rights of the red-eyed tree frog. But, you know, maybe what they don't know won't hurt them. Yeah, I think one thing that's true of most animals is that although they may be, well, they certainly are affected by this sort of capitalist machine that is currently the dominant economic structure of the planet Earth, but they don't really have bank accounts. Right. So like even a royalty check, like what would they even do with it? You know? 
They probably just get it all slimy with their secretions. And I'm not trying to give you the impression that <laughs> the Anurans over at Bovide Anura and Marmot, the prestigious law firm, that they're not capable barristers. But I just have to say that in this instance, I just don't really see the humans that were taking those photos and sharing the likeness of this red-eyed tree frog, you know. I don't think that they, I don't trust their goodwill enough to believe that they no. ensured that that frog had signed a release form. Right, yeah. They have bigger fish to fry in the courtroom. Well, I guess, ding, ding, ding. 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 <laughs> cool episode, Meredith. Yeah, we did it. Yeah, this was really fun. Stay strong, everybody. No matter what happens, yeah. we always have animals. Well, we do, I hope. Hopefully. Uh, keep the questions coming, animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Uh, we're talking to you, Bruce Blanche. Yeah, slide into the DMs, Derek from St. Petersburg. Yeah. And uh, yes. have a good week in animals. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the animal. Day.